the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we take your calls and answer your questions about the things you care the most about, questions about God and the historical Jesus, questions about the Bible, questions about worldviews and world religions. Do you think you know a lot about the Bible? Well, um, happy to talk with you about what you know and, and what you'd like to know, and perhaps what we could both agree that we don't even know about. But hey, we talk about history. We talk about prophecy, which is the future. And so if you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935. It has traditionally, we've tried to work around our schedule to have what we've been calling a Tough Question Tuesday. And Tough Question Tuesday is that opportunity for you to ask me the really hard question. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to know the answer to your really hard question, but I'm going to give it a shot. 303-873-1935. One of the really hard questions that I got asked was, um, because it's counterintuitive, in what language was America's first Bible written? In what language was America's first Bible written? You would think, you would think that the obvious answer is English, but you would be incorrect. The first Bible in the Americas wasn't written in English to be produced in America. By America, I mean the United States. It was in the Algonquin Indian language or Native American language. It was the language of America's first Bible. John Eliot, who was a colonial pastor and has been called the apostle to the Indians, published his Algonquin Bible in 1662. Now, what's interesting about that question and about its answer is at that time, English law required that all English Bibles be printed in England. And because all English Bibles were required to be printed in England, there were no English Bibles printed prior to the appearance of that very first Bible to appear, at least in this part of the Americas, and that was in the Algonquin language. So there it is, 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program 303-873-1935. And of course, if you'd like to join me, like I said, producer Jim is standing by to take your call, 303-873-1935 on this Tough Question Tuesday. And um, as we've been looking through the headlines, there are a couple of things that I want to bring to your attention 
And of course, Elon Musk has been making the headlines because he purchased stock in Twitter. He became the largest shareholder in Twitter, which has has sort of created a a kind of an awakening across America and even among the people who use Twitter because it was Elon Musk who basically characterized Twitter as being America's town square. Already, apparently, uh, people at Twitter, upon hearing that Elon Musk is the largest shareholder, have quit. But after a week of saying that he would launch a new social media platform, billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk has become Twitter's largest shareholder. This has been reported by Fox Business. And um, yesterday there was a filing with the SEC that showed that the Tesla and SpaceX CEO bought, get this, 73.5 million shares of Twitter. And after purchasing 73.5 million shares of Twitter, he still only owned 9.2% in the company. But following that, Twitter's shares value jumped by 25%. So literally from the time that he bought it and his acquisition of it, it increased in value just by sheer apparently by sheer force of the fact that he bought it. Before making the purchase, he asked several of his followers on Twitter whether he should launch a new social platform over Twitter's tendency to censor dissenting voices. Now, again, we have to ask and answer the question, which is going to be easier, to recreate Twitter or to just simply purchase Twitter? And, oh, by the way, does he want to be... um, Does he want to own it lock, stock, and barrel? Well, that's apparently not possible. But, again... He wrote in a March 26th tweet, quote, given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? Is a new platform needed? Now, what's interesting and what you may not know and what hasn't been widely reported is that Elon Musk called our friends... At Babylon B. You'll remember we reported that Babylon B was banned from Twitter because they named um, a Biden official uh, who's transgender, Rachel Levine, as the man of the year. And they banned Twitter for hate, or they banned the satire site for hate speech. And so apparently Elon Musk called the Babylon Bee just to confirm that it was true. And then after talking to them about the truthfulness of that, launched a campaign to purchase much of Twitter. So according to CBN News, several conservative Twitter users encouraged Musk to uh, to purchase the platform. But 303... 303- 873-1935, we'll have more to say about this. The press secretary for Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, Chris, Christina Peshaw, 
urged the billionaire to buy it and enact a new policy to make it an ideological neutral platform. See, not an ideological conservative platform, but an ideological neutral platform. How interesting. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Gino. How can I help you? So uh, I had two kind of basic questions. Um, shall I just yeah? Let's start with one. Or you want some background, or you mean the background to the question? Just my background. I um, just briefly. So I, sure. I uh, used to go to Crossroads Church uh, when when Tom Stipe was a pastor there, and oh, okay, I was traditionally very like a strict Christian. Either this is it or it's not. I wasn't like I just strict like in the letter of kind of the Bible as the law. And I began to, this is tying to my first question, I began to feel it didn't seem to make sense that it seems like, for instance, in that church, they teach the Bible, they're born again, but if, I don't have a less crude way to put this, if a bomb went off one day and everybody in that church died, even in that Bible-preaching, Jesus-teaching church, not everybody would have been accepted Jesus and gone to heaven. So that's I'm getting at my question. Yeah, we're coming um, maybe, up on a yeah we're coming up on a break. So okay. I'm going to have to have you finish your thought when you come back. Okay. But it seems to me, yeah, you're you're leading somewhere, and let's see if we can get to that place. This is Gino Dracy. We'll be back. Three zero three eight seven three nineteen thirty five. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Tracy. We're talking with Dan. And Dan, before we went to the break, you were telling me a little bit about yourself and your background. And you were talking, um, and you said that if a bomb exploded at at in at in at crossroads, that there are people in the building suddenly, yeah. that they wouldn't go to heaven. So right, I'm saying a, a portion of them would not. Yeah. yeah, a portion of them would not. So I guess I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what is it that you're trying to, or what are you suggesting or what are you asking? So what I'm getting at, that's a um, Jesus te- teaching church, a Bible teaching church. There are many churches that are not um, Christian churches. And I'm not going to go into detail. Just, we know some churches we kind of consider dead churches. So I'm trying to say, of all the Christians, the Christian religion, even the Christians that teach Jesus, the Christians are, if they died, they weren't going to, they're not going to go to heaven. And I'm trying to say, let alone Hindus, Muslims, Jewish people, and then people that have never heard of, of any religion. And what I'm adding up to is billions and billions of people on earth, when they die, their destiny is to burn in hell for all eternity. And it seems like as God is so loving, I don't understand why the plan that defaulted or ended up happening was this. We could say that wasn't his original plan, but this is how it is now. It doesn't make sense to me that a very few people will go to heaven. A huge amount of people go to hell. That's what I have a problem with. Yeah, and and I think that the way that I would answer your question is to make sure that we understand exactly what we're talking about. And and that is, in order to understand what we're talking about, we have to ask different kinds of questions, like, what in the world are we being saved from? So it's the Christian 
belief that we're saved from God's wrath, that is, God's judgment of sin. And so when we ask and we answer the question, are people sinners by nature and by choice? And so so we're, we're talking about two different things about God's plan to remedy the problem of sin. And so according to the revelation of the Bible, sin separated us from God, and the consequence of sin is death. And that biblical salvation requires us to be delivered from the consequences of sin and the removal of sin. So Christians believe that only God can remove sin and only God can deliver us from sin's penalty. How does he do that? In the Christian doctrine of salvation, God rescues us through Christ. This is the gospel, specifically Jesus's death on the cross, his subsequent resurrection. So when we ask and we answer the question, we need to make sure people don't go to hell uh, because they they're a Hindu or a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic. People go to hell because they're sinners and people go to heaven because they've come into a right relationship with, with God through Christ Jesus, the Lord. Remember in John three, all people have to do to go to hell is just continue doing what you're doing. So the big question becomes, what Paul talks about in the book of Romans. Are people accountable, even if they live on the other side of the world, even if they grew up in a different religious tradition? In other words, is there sufficient information in the heart of a human being to know that there's a creator and that they're a sinner and that they need a savior? So according to the Bible, people are judged on the basis of, not of what they don't know, but what they do know. So according to the Bible, we're saved by grace through faith. You have to hear the gospel. And, and then you have to believe the gospel. That involves repentance, changing your mind, and then calling on the name of the Lord. So is it possible, like you, you talk, talk, what you talked about earlier, that there are people in the church, the bomb goes off, and some of the people go to heaven, and some of the people go to hell. On what basis are they going to heaven? People people go to heaven because they have a right relationship with God in Christ. Okay. People go to hell because they don't. So so we could we could take this one step further, and say, are the people who are going to heaven, do they somehow participate in the journey? Well, in a way they do in the sense that they hear the gospel and respond to the gospel, but can they save themselves? The answer is no. If there was no such thing as a gospel or Jesus, would anybody be saved? The answer is no. And so that's what Paul argues when he says, how can they know unless somebody sends a preacher to preach to them and tell them? So the way that I would think about this is that, the Christian doctrine of salvation is the deliverance by the grace of God from eternal punishment for sin, which is granted to those who accept by faith God's condition of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. So the big question becomes, again, how how were people saved prior to Jesus? They were saved the by law. 
Yeah, they were. No, they weren't saved. No one was saved by the law. Not a single human being ever got saved by the law. That's what Paul argues in the book of Romans. How many people got saved because of the law? No one. What the law did, Paul argues, is convince them that they're sinners. In other words, what the law did was create the reality that they had broken the law. So imagine you're in your car, okay? And you're driving down I-25 or I-70 or wherever you happen to be in the front range. And you notice that the speed limit's 50 miles an hour or 65 miles an hour. You look down at your speedometer and you're going 70 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour. That, okay. that law has revealed that you've just broken the law. Now, using that analogy, if the police officer pulls you over and says, how fast you were going, and you said, I was going 80 miles an hour. D does he give you a ticket based on all of the times you obeyed the law or the one time you broke the law? The one time you broke it. That's exactly right. So the big question then becomes, are you telling me that even one sin is enough to disqualify you from heaven? The answer is yes. So... Now we're back to your original question. If God knew that the vast majority of people, did God know, by the way, that Adam and Eve was going to sin? The answer is yes. Did he know that all of their offspring would sin? The answer is yes. Did he know that we would literally um, separate at the Tower of Babel and go to different parts of the earth and speak different languages and believe different things? The answer is yes. But did God, again, give an adequate, um, the, the word I'm going to use is revelation of himself in creation and conscience? According to Paul, the answer is yes. Everyone in the world knows that there's a God. Well, what about the people who don't believe in God? Remember, those people have to go against their own experience. You, they're judged by their own standards, you're saying? Well, in a way, they're, they're judged by the external standards of reality. A creator exists because there's a creation. But then there's an internal standard. It's your conscience, where, where in your own conscience, you, you have this mechanism inside of you that says, I need you to do the right thing. And then you do the wrong thing. And so the moment that the person says, I, I did the wrong thing. They understand that there's something wrong with them. They did the wrong thing. How do you remedy doing the wrong thing? By simply acknowledging it? So, so again, your question is a great question. And, and that is, well, then, how is it possible that anyone's saved? <laughs> how, how can anyone be saved? Well, through the blood of Christ, but it almost sounds like you're going down a line that, or you're saying the people that have never heard of are going by their own sense of right and wrong. And if they. That's Paul's argument in, in Romans chapter one. Is, so can you, so you if, you, if you don't accept Jesus, you can also, by the way, get to heaven by following your own standards that are good. No, right and wrong. because Paul argues that everyone, by following their own set of standards, fails to meet the standard. There are none good, no, not one. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, I got to go, but thanks for your call.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. I'll talk more about Elon Musk and Twitter and all of that stuff. But there's another um, interesting story that I do want to get to. But I want to I talk a little bit more about this idea of a loving God sending someone to hell, which is something that I'm sure that many of you have heard, and maybe you yourself have said, how can a loving God send someone to hell? And yesterday we talked about the goodness of God. And so when we ask and we answer the question, does the Bible teach that God is a good God and a loving God? And so if God is a good God and a loving God, would God and a, would a good and a loving God come up with a plan that would save, quote unquote, the most amount of people without violating his own nature or undermining what it means to be a human being? And yesterday, remember, I said, the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And of course, in Psalm 100, uh, verse 5, it says, the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And so his loving goodness, kindness, and faithfulness exists at all times. So in order to address the question of a loving God sending someone to hell, we have to define a few terms and correct a few wrong assumptions. And those definitions have to be biblical. And the assumptions have to be correct. So if we ask and we answer the question, a loving God, what do we mean by that? What what do you mean by that? And what do I mean by that? The phrase assumes something about God and answering the question at hand, according to flawed assumptions leads to a wrong conclusion. So in our culture, remember defining a loving God is this God who is completely non-confrontational, who tolerates everything, who's a smiling grandfather, who allows us to do everything that we want to do. But again, if we define our terms um, in terms of the Bible and we ask and we answer the question, what does the Bible mean when it says that God is love? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it says, um, so we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. John says, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So if this loving God, if loving means doing what's in the best interest of the person loved, then we have to ask that question. Is God doing what's in the best interest of the person loved? And is it in the best interest of the person loved to ignore sin or to just simply tolerate sin? So if God is love, that means he doesn't possess love like we do. He is the very definition of love. Therefore, According to the Bible, God is incapable of doing anything that is anything other than un, th- th- than loving. 
In other words, the, to, to say about a God who is love that he could, in fact, do something that is unloving violates the law of non-contradiction. And the law of non-contradiction states that something cannot be both true and untrue at the same time in the same way. So if God is love, according to the Bible, then he cannot be at the same time unloving, according to the Bible. Now, some people might think, well, I'm not going according to the Bible. I'm going according to me. Well, that is a, that's the first problem. So the first fallacy present in the question how can a loving God send someone to hell is the idea that allowing people to go to hell is in fact unloving on God's part. So if we argue the other way, then how do you explain a loving God sending someone to hell? If we humans decide that God is somehow wrong to allow unrepentant sinners to pay their deserved penalty, then we've declared that we're more loving than God is, or that our standard of righteousness is a greater standard. And I think that there are some people who believe that. We've set ourselves up as God's judge and jury, and in doing so, we close the door to a deeper understanding both not uh, of the nature of God and the severity of the problem of sin on the part of human beings. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. How much time do we have? We got a few minutes. Mark, welcome to the program. Yeah, are you there? I am. Okay, I'll turn my radio off then. Hey, I just wanted to make a comment about the gentleman's question, and that was Psalm 19. Glory of God, the skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. Right. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to the end of the world. Right, the psalmist is saying creation is telling us something about the Creator. Yes, yes, that's what I'm saying. You, you see the beauty of the sunrise, the stars, the uh, sunset, and it's saying, look, God, I'm God. I made this beautiful thing for you to enjoy. And so everybody in every language is what it says can see that. Right. And, and, and so, yeah, the psalmist is basically declaring what you just said, so that if you wake up in Borneo, or if you wake up in Hawaii, or you wake up in Central or South America, or you wake up in Australia, no matter where you wake up, the, the, the earth and the moon and the stars and creation is telling you something about this God. And, and, and so... That's my point, and and it, and if part of the point that that Paul is making about creation and the conscience, where where he's arguing for the person who says, well, why didn't you, why didn't you give me sufficient evidence or, or a sufficient revelation so that I could in fact be saved? 
And according to the Bible, the sufficient revelation that's been given is in Christ, that Christ is the sufficient revelation about our problem and its solution. And, and see, this is why I think there's such a commitment on the part of, of a wicked, perverse culture to be hostile to the gospel. But it's our job to continue to, to tell people, no, this is what the gospel says, and this is what it means, and this is what it does. Yeah, amen. And and because of that, like it says about everybody can see, then God God doesn't send people to hell. They make a choice to go there on their own. Well, and I believe every single person has that opportunity some way to encounter God and has encountered God. Uh, God's made that oper- option available to them, and they've either chose or rejected it. Yeah, I genuinely think that no one will be in hell by accident. And no one will be in heaven accidentally. Yeah, and I don't think anybody can say, well, you know. Unfortunately, we've been on that for an excuse. Hey, thanks for your call, but I got to (laughs) go. Thanks, Gino. This is Gino Geraci, 303-873-1935. Five more when we come back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Let's see who's up. 303-873-1935. That's the number. Okay. Uh, Ernie, welcome to the program. Hello, Gino. How Hello. are you? Good. Good. Uh, could you uh, kind of go into, since we're coming up on... Uh, the Resurrection Day, the etymology of Easter and Passover? Sure. I mean, when you're talking about the meaning of Easter from a from just a, 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 from a, a word usage, um, but, well, obviously it is the... The time to celebrate, if you will, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The word Easter, different people have said different things, like that it's somehow related to Azura or Ashtart. Some people believe it's just related to the word East, which points to the sunrise and Mm -hmm. new beginnings. And for Easter... Um, for some people, it doesn't mean anything. It just means I have a day off and I'm going to dye some eggs. I'm going to hide them and I'm going to let my children look for them. Yep. But Uh, obviously for the Christian, it's mm -hmm. a time that we set aside and we ask and we answer that most important question. And that is, if Jesus really rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, if what the Bible says about a man dying on a cross, being buried and coming back to life, if this is true, then everything that we understand about reality has to somehow fit into that category. And that that's why I think when people get saved, like really saved in the sense that hey, you mean Jesus is the Lord and everything that the Bible says about sin and my need for a Savior and that Jesus 
proves his identity by coming back to life. You mean all of that's true? Mm-hmm. And if all of that's true, then it, it necessitates us being able to look at everything in light of that. Yes. Yes. So that, to me, uh, next to Christmas is one of the most uh, venerated uh, holidays in Christianity. If he wasn't resurrected, we were not be we'll be not resurrected. So that's uh, right. So so the way that that I think about it is so. Pick any topic. If you pick any topic at all, like, well, what about death? Well, if the resurrection is true, death has been conquered. That Easter means that our sins are forgiven. We're, we can be made right with God through Christ. It means that Jesus is the king and the victor, like it says in Ephesians one twenty one, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. So we, we look at the death and it is it's it's hard to look at, at the news of what's going on in the Ukraine seeing dead bodies in the streets but then we remind ourselves about the dead bodies in the streets of Sa- Sacramento and the dead bodies in the streets of Chicago and we realize there are dead bodies all over this world because people are killing each other and so it means the incomprehensibly great power of God, that if God can bring Jesus back from the dead, and if Jesus can say what he said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live, it gives this exciting possibility that human beings can come back to life. Now, again, I'm not talking about coming back to life with a decrepit body or a body that's only going to subsequently die again. We're talking about a glorified body. And of course, how how can you escape the meaning of hope? If the resurrection is true, then there's hope. Yes. And if the resurrection yes. is not true, if the resurrection is not true, then then guess no what? Hope. As you already know, Ernie, people have to struggle to find some sort of meaning Yes. In a world that doesn't seem to really have meaning if you look at the facts carefully. Yes. So, so Amen. yeah, if it weren't for Jesus, I think I, by this time I would be in total despair. <laughs> yes. Well, thank God that he was ro- raised from the dead, and we have that glorious hope, knowing that we will someday be resurrected. And that just, uh, to me, Easter is a such a wonderful holiday to uh, celebrate uh, his resurrection and subsequently our resurrection. To me, it's like what Spurgeon would say. You know, he would talk about when you teach the Bible, go teach the text and then make a beeline for the cross. Yes. And then then the resurrection. And so for me, Easter, the resurrection, if you just think of anything and you go, just anything, and then... Add resurrection to it. Love. Resurrection. Love is stronger than death. Love. Someone said, burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench 
love. Mm. Rivers cannot sweep it away. That's what it says in Song of Solomon. Yes, it was yeah. love that God gave his only son, John three sixteen. It was love where Jesus yeah. di- dies on the cross. Here in his love, in that while we were sinners, Jesus dies. And then it's, yes. it is for love, the risen Jesus intercedes for the children. And mm-hmm. so, you know, here, here you have, allow the children to come to me, Jesus says. And, but there are people who are listening to this program. They won't take their children to church. Mm-hmm. But now, now, again, I'm not suggesting that just simply taking your children to church is taking them to Jesus. But right. why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to take your children yes. to church? Amen. Yes. To teach them the most important valued thing in life is the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. It's so anyway, I just, coming up on Easter and Passover, I love this time of year. Spring, fourth, hope. Uh, so thank you so much. Thanks, Ernie. David uh, in Denver, you've got about 60 seconds. Go. Hey there, quick question. Uh, going back to the topic of election, um, I just wrote down two quick thoughts because um, it was a little bit confusing. Some of the uh, some of the answers it was: Did we choose God first, or did He choose us first? And then the second one is real similar: Are there scriptures that support the idea that God um, will not ensure the salvation of anyone? Well, I think that the way that I would put it is the most famous scripture of all: John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So is there scriptures that ensure that a person will not be saved? Well, again, it depends on what you mean by election. If you mean elected by God without regard to faith in Christ, or if you mean elected by God in accordance with faith, in Christ. Now we can use a, a human example and say, you know, to a husband and wife, who liked who first? And one person might say, he liked me first, or I liked him first. We, we can speak in a human fashion of initiating a relationship. I think the scriptures are clear that God initiates the relationship with human beings. Jesus said, no one comes to the father unless they're drawn by him. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and, and, I, I think I, I'd agree and, with that. But and, it, and so it, one of two things is true. Either God appears to offer salvation to all, or he truly offers salvation to all on the condition that they receive and believe in Jesus. Yeah, I see. Well, it's uh, I guess it's something that can be debated right into, into eternity, but I just keep thinking, if, is God going to draw anyone to himself that will not be saved in the end. Well, th- um, that, 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 that's a great question because, again, why would Jesus say in John 8 to the religious leaders, unless you believe that I am who I say that I am, you will likewise perish in your sin. When Jesus said to the religious leaders, believe in me, and they didn't, is it, is it because Jesus was an ineffective speaker or he was making a wrong invitation or did they truly resist him and reject him 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.